what we realized is that we can't purely police ourselves out of this this crisis, nor do we want to. And so we're really trying to uh, combine deployment of strategic uh, security officers with the ambassadors who are there to help the public, but also provide additional eyes and ears on the system. We went from top to bottom, really identifying things that we could do to try to disincentivize negative behavior and really take back that station for our customers and for the community. This is Transit Unplugged. I'm Paul Comfort. Good to be with you on another edition of the world's leading transit executive podcast, Transit Unplugged. Today, I'm excited to have with us as our guest, the chief operating officer of one of the largest transit systems clearly in America and one of the largest ones in the world, LA Metro, and that's my friend Conan Chung. Conan, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you, Paul. It's a pleasure to be here. Conan and I were uh, having coffee a month or two ago when I was in LA for something, but uh, we were sitting having coffee for like an hour one day and he's telling me all the stuff that is so cool that he does. And I was like, Conan, we got to get you on the podcast. And it really is a good, uh, I think, Conan, you and I were just talking in the green room. It's a good uh, differentiator to have a chief operating officer on once in a while versus always CEOs because um, CEOs talk a lot of uh, you know big grandiose ideas and what they're doing, direction they're going, the vision. They're the they're the top you know visionary. Then the COO actually is the one that does a lot of that work and actually implements it. It's where the rubber hits the road. I remember when I was CEO of MTA in Baltimore, you know, I had uh, John Duncan as my COO and I remember telling him, you know, all right, John, just do it. <laughs> you know what we've got to get done. Just go out there and get it done, man. Does uh, does Stephanie Wiggins say that to you? Come on, Conan, just do it. Get it done. <laughs> yeah, that definitely sounds familiar. You know, <laughs> I've been in this uh, position for a year and I've uh, never a dull moment. Yeah, uh, you guys are like the uh, so everybody knows New York is the largest, but between you and CTA, Chicago Transit or Dorval, you guys are kind of competing for second biggest transit system in America, right? Yeah, I'd say we're second. There, you I'm, go. I'm gonna claim that now. <laughs> claim it, man. Take your take your ground. Right. Um, well, listen, um, I guess before we get into some of these really cool programs like on route charging, one day hiring fairs, your multi pronged safety and security efforts, which I really want to dig into because that's a hot topic. And I know Stephanie's big on that too, uh, security in, in the system. But first off, tell us a little bit about your system, LA Metro. I mean, Los Angeles Metro is a phenomenally large service area, covers all kinds of, uh, you know, cities and areas. And it's just, it's big. Can you describe to us a little bit about the system and what you oversee there? Yeah, sure. I mean, as as we're trying to say, uh, I would say that we're the second largest uh, transit agency in, in the country here. In terms of the bus system, we have over 2,000 buses in our fleet. Uh, we have about 121 bus lines. We used to have 170, but we went through a major system redesign a few years ago, which I led, and we tried to simplify the system a lot more for our customers. So even though we do have 120 bus lines, we have less bus lines, but we are providing the same amount of service, which is about... 7 million annualized revenue hours. And we spread that across about 12,000 bus stops. Again, that's something where we had about 16,000, I'd say about five years ago. But, you know, having more bus stops isn't necessarily better, really slowing the system down. So we're absolutely spending a lot of time rationalizing the bus stop spacing. And we feel that we're in a pretty optimal state right now. We still have uh, a ways to go uh, on improving the speed and reliability of the system. But we operate out of about 10 uh, directly operated bus divisions, and then we have three contract bus divisions. On the rail side, we do have five light rail lines, 
two heavy rail lines, about a, hundred, a little over 100 stations, and we operate out of seven rail yards with about 340 light rail cars and about 100 heavy rail cars. And you and Paratrans is handled by Access Services, Andre Colace's group? Yeah, Paratransit is handled by Access Services. We did start, however, Microtransit. Oh, yeah. Um, we go. So That's the we, biggest pilot in America, right? Yeah, it's pretty big. We probably have close to 90 vehicles. We operate out of those four locations. We have about eight zones out there. Uh, we've operated about two years now, a little over two years uh, on a pilot. It's a three-year pilot. Uh, so we are into optimizing that system, okay. both from a service design perspective, but also in understanding how you can set up a, a proper model for microtransit where you can achieve what your goals are, but within a reasonable cost. Yeah. And and this is on demand, right? V- vans that are being run on demand in certain zones. Yeah, it's on demand. Uh, you know, you access it through an app. If you don't have access to an app or a, a smartphone, you can always call into dispatch and we can uh, schedule your trip at that time. Well, that's a pretty massive operation altogether, taken all together. And as the chief operating officer of the agency, all that falls under your purview? Yeah, that in, in addition to shared bikes, bike sharing. Uh, here at Metro, we are multimodal. So the express lanes are also under me. We have express lanes, toll lanes uh, on the 105, I mean, on the 110 freeway, sorry, and the 10 freeway. But we are about ready to build the 105 freeway as well. I do have a function with the call boxes and, you know, the roving tow trucks to keep the highways clear and then highway ITS. So it is really multimodal in terms of what we consider operations at at Metro here. You've got a great boss you're working for, Stephanie Wiggins, very respected in the industry with a great background coming in, taking hold um, of of this big operation and really, um, I would say, reshaping it in her image and and uh, creating all kinds of new innovations. I mean, she's a great boss. I hope to have her on the show sometime. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've enjoyed working with Stephanie. Uh, I've known her for, for many years. Obviously, she's a different capacity now. And um, I'm really excited just about her passion, not only for the work that we do here, the communities we serve, but for her, you know, our greatest assets here at Metro are our employees. And she really takes that to heart. And she pushes that that perspective and and that value down through all of her uh, cabinet members. Do you know about how many employees you have in the whole agency? We're about uh, eleven thousand. Uh, okay, I think about a little over eight thousand are under operations. Well, let's speaking of operations, let's dig in, man, and unpack some of the cool things you're working on now. We'll start off with um, battery electric buses. As uh, you and I have been talking about, California has some of the strongest and and uh, rules and moving toward. Uh, zero emission, right? Tell us about the context and then tell us about some of the cool things you're doing when it comes to electrical charging. Sure. I mean, when you talk about the state level, the the mandate is that, you know, all of us transit agencies, school bus districts and so forth, we need to convert to 100% zero emission by 2040. Our board has challenged us to advance that. Uh, currently, uh, actually a few years ago, the board had an aspirational goal to hit 2030 as our mark. We're looking at that. We're tracking the technology. Uh, we're tracking the uh, utility companies, you know, opportunity to provide the charging for us, funding, obviously. 
And we're probably landing on about 2035 or so as an optimal year to convert. Um, right now, we've converted our G line, which is our orange line up in San Fernando Valley. That's a bus rapid transit system that runs on its own exclusive right of way with three terminals. So, with that project, we actually have in route charging. So, we have chargers at each of the ter terminals. They're panograph chargers. The panograph comes down, touches the bus, fast chargers. We charge about 10 minutes at each end of the line. Um, and that allows the bus to kind of keep a steady state of charge, roughly between 60 to 80% charge. And so that bus is charged up 60 to 80% throughout the entire day. So when it comes back to the division, we don't necessarily have to charge it at that time. So that's one of the models that we are looking at, especially for um, something like a bus rapid transit system on exclusive right-of-way with you know, your own land as, as the uh, transit centers itself. But as far as our um, current program, we have about 45 buses uh, in-house here on property. Uh, we do have, we have put in an order for an additional 100 that should be coming in within the year or two. And we are going to procure an additional 1,000 buses. That procurement should go out, I think, within a year. So by 2023, I think we'll have the largest battery electric bus fleet in the United States. and actually. Even now, when we look at it with our orange line operations, we've hit 3 million miles, which I think is one of the highest amounts of mileage that anyone has put on an electric bus uh, system. Are you looking at any other fuels like hydrogen, like Doran Barnes is down in Foothill? We are looking at hydrogen too. Uh, I think there's a couple opportunities that we have. As I mentioned, we do have contracted bus operations. Uh, we don't own the facilities that they operate out of. And so, you know, we wouldn't be going out building chargers on those facilities right. when we own them. So perhaps hydrogen is an opportunity there. Uh, we also have longer lines, longer routes. We have one that goes from downtown LA all the way down to Disneyland in Orange County. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, we don't want that bus breaking down the middle of the freeway. Right. Uh, yeah. So we want to make sure that we have the range on the buses for some of these longer distance uh, lines. And so that's where hydrogen, I think, comes into play. And then, of course, we all talk about resiliency when we're getting into the battery, battery electric or the ZEB program. Um, and in fact, you know, if you look back at our experience over the past year or two, you know, I just remember when we had the Super Bowl here a year ago, we actually, I was getting prepared to go out and help uh, support the Super Bowl operation. I had a call in the morning saying that our charges were going down on the orange line. And that was the first time that we had to go and deploy CNG buses or compressed natural buses over to the orange line to basically bus bridge the bus operation. Oh my gosh, that's well, hilarious. So that's not hilarious, but what uh, we learned, you know, is that this this is new technology. We have to work with our vendors as partners to really flesh out um, a lot of the technical issues uh, from these uh, these assets before we go into large scale. Right. So, and another um, another aspect of this that's interesting that you mentioned to me is something called charging as a service. Can you address that and what that is? It's something that we're looking at in terms of working with the private sector. It's essentially, um, you know, you're paying for the the service of charging, right? You know, typically we would go in and we would design, uh, bid, build a charging infrastructure uh, and work with the utility companies on uh, piping in the power. Uh, charging as a service, we would basically assign the risk off to a third-party concessionaire. 
They would come in, provide the charging capacity to us. We would have performance requirements on them in terms of uh, availability, reliability, and so forth. But really, they are responsible for providing the power to us when and where we need it for our bus operations. So you haven't done it yet, but it's a possibility? Yeah, we haven't done it yet. Um, We are going to kind of traditionally build out uh, the next three divisions. Uh, We are building out Division 8 up in the Valley, Division uh, 18 down in South Bay and Carson, and Division 9 in El Monte. Those are going to be supporting the Orange Line, which uh, we do have electrified, as well as our uh, Silver Line, the J Line. Uh, which runs actually on our our express lanes, and so those charges we are going to be build out building out as well as en route charging at a couple of our uh, transit centers. But as a second phase, we are considering going with a charging as a service model uh, to build out the charging capacity at at the next three divisions that we hope to do. And are you guys doing? Do I remember? Did I hear right? Are you guys doing or have you done a people mover out to the airport to LAX? Yeah, we're not building the people mover per se. Uh, Alawa, the Los Angeles World Airports, they are building the people mover, but okay. that is going to tie into our airport metro connector station. The okay, that's what it was. Yeah. yeah, on our Crenshaw line. So that'll be great, actually, man, because the LAX can get a little congested out there. That's going to be a great station when when it's built out, and you know, it is going to, you know, it's the first time we are actually going to have a direct rail connection into LAX. Um, and it is on our, our brand new line, the K line, which, you know, used to be called the Crenshaw line. So right, we're, right. Excited, we're excited about the opening of that. Okay. So, um, this is, this is so fun. I love talking about real, the rubber hit the road issues. A big issue that has hit our transit industry after the pandemic is employees. We all remember prior to the pandemic, we had lines out the door of people applying for all of our jobs. And now it's just, you know, down to a trickle. So, but you've done something pretty cool there on one day hiring fairs and you have an announcement to make, I think, about the success of that. So why don't you tell us some about that? Yeah, I mean, we're really excited about this. We started sort of this one day hiring fair uh, last year, probably about a, a little over a year ago. And since then until now, uh, we've hired a thousand new bus operators. Uh, actually, the, the thousandth, <laughs> bus operator actually uh, went to the their division uh, last week, I believe. So huge milestone. I mean, before that, it would probably take someone anywhere from four to six months from the time that they applied till they actually got into a uh, training class. That's obviously way too long. You know, people have other opportunities, especially when we had significant labor shortages last year. Um, it was difficult to bring people in. And so we started doing these one-day hiring events, which are basically... We would set up at either our um, operations central instruction location or a, a community college somewhere. We would bring in uh, several buses, maybe 10 buses over there. People would come in. They would do their application. We would do their interviews. Um, we would have them go through agility testing on, on the buses. We do their fingerprints. And we had uh, a medical uh, mobile clinic there also to help provide uh, them with the medical testing as well. So they come in and a couple hours later, they leave our, our hiring event with a conditional offer. And so that was a great way to bring people in. We used to do those monthly. It got to a point where now we're actually 
we have several hundred people in the pipeline waiting to get into training classes. So we're actually uh, pushing out our funding hiring affairs to likely once every other month or something. Okay. But I, I, I have to say that the first time we did it, we probably had about 150 and 180 people show up, which is pretty significant still. But the latest one we did back in February, it was on a, a rainy day. It was extremely cold here in LA. We're not used to the cold <laughs> here. And I was worried that no one was going to show up. We actually had our largest event at that time. We had about 480 people come. I believe we gave out almost 420 conditional offers off of that one day itself. Amazing. What a great success story. So basically making sure that when when an applicant comes in, they can go through the whole process at one location at one time. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. And, and what happens after they get their conditional job offer? Did you also have to wrap up a few loose ends by doing what, some kind of background check or something? Right. We do their fingerprinting when they are there. Um, but what we do is we give them a conditional offer so they can start in training. So we're able to get them into a training class uh, within probably a month uh, of that time period. Um, and then as they go through the training program, we will go through all the background checks and so forth. Gotcha. So uh, I forget when it was. I think it was late. It was late last year, maybe when there was the Commotion LA event that I was at, and Stephanie spoke there, and she spoke about um, safety on the LA Metro system, particularly safety for women. They feel safe, and they are safe, wanting them to be safe on the system. You all have ramped up a bunch of different types of efforts, uh, from ambassadors to um, music playing, more lights, extending the top of rail gates to keep you know people jumping over landscaping. I mean, you've got a multi-pronged safety and security effort going on with Ed LA Metro. Is, uh, what can you tell us about that? Yeah. <laughs> well, aside from the infamous classical music, <laughs> uh, what we've done is, you know, I mean, we looked at our system, the especially on the rail network, the subway system, much like everywhere else in the country, you know, we're, we're really uh, feeling the impacts and the effects of the pandemic. You know, obviously uh, these are negative impacts, uh, we have a lot of people who are sheltering on our system. They're actually getting into ancillary areas, so they do get into our back rooms, uh, which that's is, not safe. A, yeah, exactly. It's a safety yeah. concern. Yeah. It shouldn't be back there. Um, we do have people loitering in the system. We do have drug abuse and and other uh, criminal mm-hmm. activities. So it is something that uh, we are working on trying to address. And what we're taking is that what we realize is that we can't purely police ourselves out of this this crisis, nor do we want to. And so we're really trying to uh, combine deployment of strategic uh, security officers with the ambassadors who are there to help the public, but also provide additional eyes and ears on the system and our custodial staff to go out and ensure that we are keeping the station clean. Partnering that deployment of staffing resources with more station design, uh, redesign elements. And what I mean by that is we took one station, Westlake MacArthur Park, on our red and purple lines, which is arguably, you know, one of the more challenging stations. And we went from top to bottom, really identifying things that we could do to try to disincentivize negative behavior and really take back that station for our customers and for the community. So, you know, starting at the plaza level, on the street level, it is an extremely large plaza. Um, Currently, 
There are a lot of people who hang out there, you know, doing drugs or doing stuff that they shouldn't be doing. So we have closed off, we fenced off certain areas, uh, the landscaping. Uh, we actually closed off one of the secondary entrances uh, because it, it really isn't uh, necessarily needed from a, a fire life safety evacuation perspective or access to the station itself. And what that does is it helps funnel people into one uh, entrance where we're able to put our resources within that one entrance. So it's better use of resources there. We've closed off sort of dark hiding places and corners within the stations themselves uh, to keep people out of those areas. We're looking at deploying 360 degree cameras with artificial intelligence built into it to be able to automatically sense behaviors that we would need to then dispatch as security personnel to be able to address. I mentioned the ambassadors. They're a significant aspect of this um, this deployment to be able to assist our customers through the station and along their journey, but also to provide eyes and ears out there to be able to let our law enforcement partners know if something's happening. Uh, we're also looking at redesigning our fare gates because we do have a lot of people jumping the gates, getting in through the emergency exits. So we're looking at that. Uh, we're looking at adding a kiosk there where we can have some personnel uh, to assist customers, but also for security purposes. We've changed the lighting out uh, on our platforms and throughout the mezzanines uh, because a brighter station is going to be safer. Uh, we're actually brightening up the ends of the platform where we used to have a lot of people congregate, you know, doing drugs and things like that uh, because they are darker and they're less populated at the ends of the platform. So we put temporary, you know, bright lights there to deter people. And then, you know, and then, of course, we have the infamous uh, classical music that we're piping into the system. And I shouldn't laugh about it, but I really, you know, it, it is a way to be able to claim back the, the station. Um, and in fact, we've implemented some of these uh, the strategies. And so far, we've actually seen nearly 20% reduction in crime, 75% reduction in loitering within the area. 75% reduction in calls for emergency service, 50% reduction in vandalism, graffiti, and special cleanups. And we've, we've started actually surveying our customers. We're continuing to do that, but just initial results are actually supporting several of our, our strategies. Uh, brighter lighting was actually had the greatest number of supporters, uh, followed actually by the music. Um, and then third by the ambassadors. So I think- These are like, what we're, these are like you know, polls you did of your passengers or something. You asked them what they thought. Yeah, we had a we have a survey that we're deploying right now. Uh, so these are some of the initial results from- That's interesting. Yeah. The other thing that we're trying to do also is provide opportunities for people who are either lower income or you know who are unhoused. And so we're working with the uh, county of LA. They actually deployed their mobile uh, clinic uh, at Westlake MacArthur Park to provide those services for people who need it, who are sheltering on our system. And we've actually started uh, putting in an on-site, what we call LIFE, a low-income fair is equitable program, uh, which is basically our low-income uh, fair program. And since we started, we actually started this yesterday, we put this, this table there at the station, we had over 400 people either enroll in the system or we're providing more information on the program. So we're really trying to get them, give them the opportunity to use the transit system for transportation uh, by removing that barrier as it relates to fare fares. Wow. That's a lot of stuff. That's great. 
Conan, it sounds like the passengers uh, generally are supportive and you're getting the results you're getting are impressive. Yeah, we're continuing to pilot this. You know, we're going to take a look and see what strategies work, what doesn't work, and then right. we will look to sort of replicate that throughout the rest of our system. Yeah. I mean, you don't know until you try, right? And then you see what works and what doesn't work. Yeah. When I was in Baltimore, we started uh, the nation's first and I think still only FM radio station owned and operated by a transit system. And uh, we got it up on Television Hill way up. I had a guy, Mark, that was uh, the voice of the station, real great deep FM d- uh, DJ voice, you know. And uh, and we decided to do smooth jazz all day long because Baltimore's known for, you know, a lot of great jazz players. And we ended up piping that into our stations and into, um, you know, wherever we had hubs and things like that. And I got to be honest, people loved it. Uh, we heard so many comments, people that, you know, it was just quiet here before. <laughs> and now there's some, now, you know, you, you can't, it all depends, I guess, on the volume, but we had it at a reasonable volume. I think you guys do too, right? They found it enjoyable, actually. Yeah. I mean, this is a public space, but we want to, you know, I mean, this, these are spaces there for the community also, you know? And so another thing we're looking at, especially at this station, is really reinvigorating a more formalized vendor program on oh, yeah. the level so that people in the community can use it, you know, to provide their services. There's, you know, activity on the plaza, which is, again, going to help out safety. And we are preserving uh, spaces within the plaza for station activation. So if the community wants to do a concert, something like that, uh, you know, or, you know, some sort of yoga class or whatever it is, it's space that the community can use for themselves. That's great. I was just up in Vancouver last week with Kevin Quinn, the CEO of uh, TransLink. And I was just so impressed with just what you're talking about, the integration of vendors and businesses into the stations. There, you know, it was um, it it really integrated well into the community and they, they really had some great transit-oriented development. So that's wonderful. The last big topic I wanted to mention uh, is something you mentioned to me that you do and I really commend you for it, Conan. And that is, you know, listening to your employees. Not only are you listening to your riders, but tell us about the program you have getting out into the shops and listening to your employees. Yeah, I mean, like I told you, I, I've been in this this job about a, a little over a year. And, you know, I'm coming in, you know, coming off the pandemic. We have pretty low morale throughout the ranks. I mean, these are all of our frontline employees. They had to come to work. They had to be out there uh, in harm's way and so forth. And to me, I, I have a, a planning background. So I'm used to going out and engaging the community, figuring out what do we need to do to improve transportation for our community. I basically turn that engagement inwards and I'm telling myself, well, what can I do to help support uh, my employees? And so what I've done is I've made a commitment to go out to all the divisions, all the locations a few times a year. I invite all of the executives uh, here at uh, our headquarters building that you don't have to be in operations if you're planning or finance or program management or whatever. Uh, Human resources, definitely uh, the security department, come out and talk to our employees. As I mentioned, we have 10 directly operated bus divisions, seven rail divisions. So there are a lot of locations to get through just on the uh, maintenance side and the transportation side. So uh, we've been going out. We've been having a, a lot of great conversations with really good employees. They tell us what their pain points are. We take it back. Uh, we try to work on them within operations or uh, partner with the other departments within the agency to try to address those issues. And a lot of it also is feedback, right? I mean, you have to go back out and tell your employees what you're doing, uh, what you can do, what you can't do, and why. 
uh, and show some progress there. But, you know, again, I think it's really important to go out there and number one, go out there and, and recognize your employees, you know, recognize the people that are actually providing the services that keep us going every day. I love going out there and appreciating what they do. Uh, again, listening to what they have to say, and most importantly, being able to come back and provide something which is a solution for them. And this case in point, you know, the first time we went out to talk to the bus operators, a lot of the concerns were security, safety from from some of our riding public. And so we, even though we have barriers, you know, operator barriers on all of our buses, they're not that big. They don't extend all the way to the windshield. There were reasons for that, but they said, well, you know, it's like, can you look at putting a better barrier up? Because people can still get around it. Uh, they can spit, they can throw stuff around right. it. So, you know, I challenged my engineering group and my bus maintenance group to create a new barrier. And so we were able to create two prototypes, which we're actually testing right now out at the division. So the operators are taking those buses out. They, we have a quick survey for them to fill out to let us know what they think about the barrier. Uh, glare was one of the issues that we were trying to address. And so, you know, we really need to know what they like, uh, if there are any other improvements we can make on that. And then once we get that information, we'll be able to uh, really understand what we should deploy out uh, system-wide. And it's just one example of something that we're doing specifically directly related to what we heard from our operators there. And of course, you know, talking to custodial staff is, is, is also really key. Um, and all the other employees that you have on the front line, the maintenance away people and so forth. So it is a big part of my job, but I think it's a really important part of my job. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, who I always used to say, you know, and I still do, who really knows what's going on better than the people that are right in the front lines doing it, right? And uh, our goal is to, you know, um, provide safe, efficient, reliable service with world-class customer service. And that involves not just hearing from your passengers, but also your employees. So I think you're doing it right, Conan. What a great conversation, man. We could talk for another hour, I think, like we did the other day when we over coffee. But these were the couple of things that really caught my you know, attention, the things you're doing there that are really interesting and effective. Uh, I mean, the fact that you've been able to hire a thousand drivers or operators through your one-day hiring fair. I mean, that's Phenomenal. I mean, that's an example for the rest of the industry. Just great work. I wish you all continuing the best um, there at LA Metro. I can't wait till the next time I'm out. We can get together and chat some more. Thanks for being our guest today, Conan. And I, I love having a COO on, man. We got to do a COO panel sometime. One of these live panels, you know, get like three or four of you up there and and really, really dig in like we did today. Thank you, Paul. I really appreciate this opportunity. Hi, this is Mike Bismeyer, Transit and Kindness Advocate, and this is Mike's Minute, where we talk about mentorship, leadership, and kindness with the hopes it'll inspire you to pay it forward. I'm excited to talk to you today as I was fortunate enough to participate this past weekend in a leadership workshop led by Sylvie DiGetso, along with 30 transportation directors and leaders. The workshop was based on understanding our personal selling points, both for leadership and first impressions. Diving deep into what makes us us, which is always fascinating, and the small changes we can make to help guide those first impressions our personal brand, and the overall impact we make every day. However, what was most exciting was when asked to share something personal, a story of origin, or something that made you, you, I was amazed to see the emotional, incredible stories that people shared without thinking twice about it. Incredible things that people do every day, outside of their day-to-day jobs. Examples were plentiful. Folks that volunteer up to five days a week at animal rescues, PTSD military events, youth life training courses, on and on. 
all being done in addition to the day-to-day passion of ensuring that each and every one of us gets where we're going by providing transportation that is needed. Proof again that we are surrounded by everyday heroes. We all have a story. We should empower those stories and celebrate our peers. Encourage your team to share. It will only make them better. This creates a culture of kindness and empathy within our workplaces that's been proven time and time again and also leads to my old saying, kindness truly is cool and we are all cool in our own way. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Transit Unplugged with our special guest, Conan Chung, COO of LA Metro. Coming up next week on the show, we have two very special guests. First off, we have Alex Esposito, co-founder and CEO of Circuit, a microtransit startup with a very interesting model for deploying microtransit in cities. And we follow that with our leadership segment and Marinma Dorado, talking about finding your passion at work and matching it to the job you really should be doing. Let's hear a little bit from both of these interviews. So we're very focused on connections. How do we connect two riders so they're riding together? How do we connect people with the train station? How do we connect people with the bus stop? Ultimately, our goal is to get people out of their cars. And there's no better way to do that than a train or a bus. As as a leader, if you don't have passion, how are you going to influence your team? It's virtually impossible to do that only with willpower. If you have a question, comment, or like to be a guest on the show, feel free to email us anytime at info at transitunplugged.com. Transit Unplugged is brought to you by Medaxo. At Medaxo, we're passionate about moving the world's people. And at Transit Unplugged, we're passionate about telling the stories of the people who do just that. So until next week, ride safe and ride happy.